Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salbert, and this is my monthly podcast with the American Journal of Managed Care. And we have a very, very timely guest today uh, because I just spent the morning watching the nomination for HHS cabinet seat of Tom Price. So primed to have a conversation about uh, what's up with repeal and replace with a focus today as we talk to Sally Pipes, who is a health policy expert, the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute um, since 1991, and also assistant director in the past of uh, Canada's Fraser Institute, and then active involvement in politics, an advisor, healthcare advisor to Mayor Rudy Giuliani when he uh, ran for the Republican nomination, as well as being a Cal- with fellow Californians uh, in the past, a member of Governor Schwarzenegger's transition team. So welcome, Sally. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, here's what I want to talk about. I um, know that you have your your own ideas about what should be the replacement. We, we It looks like we're on this path towards repeal, but what's still up in the air, what still isn't really known, at least to the general public, is what what are the elements of a replacement plan? What will replacement look like? And I know that you have a plan that you call the way out of Obamacare, um, but it has principles in it that overlap with, say, Paul Ryan's plan, uh, elements of what we know about Donald Trump's plan, some of what Rand Paul has presented, and, and really long-standing Republican uh, principles of um, health care reform. So I thought we would talk about some of those today, and that we would start out talking about high-risk pools. So Sally, can you explain to our listeners exactly what is a high-risk pool, who would be in, in it, and and what kind of impact do you think it would have on both access, uh, coverage, because I don't think access and coverage are actually exactly the same thing, and cost. Right. Well, high-risk pools um, are part of my plan. They're part of Paul Ryan's A Better Way, his white paper, and also Dr. Tom Price's um, Empowering Patients First Act. High-risk pools are pools where people with chronic or pre-existing conditions, um, once Obamacare, assuming it's repealed and replaced, would be able to get uh, coverage at rates that they could afford because the federal government would put in um, so that each state could have its own high-risk pool and they would put in um, amounts of money. I, my, my number is $25 billion over 10 years. Uh, Dr. Tom Price is $1 billion a year for three years. I think Paul Ryan is $3 billion a year. So th- this would mean that people who have these chronic or pre-existing conditions who probably have coverage under the Affordable Care Act now would actually be able to get coverage that is affordable through these high-risk pools that will be run by the states. So 35 states have already done this, and the feds had a high-risk pool during the transition period from pre-Obamacare to Obamacare, and uh, and none of them really worked very well because when you put the sickest, most costly people into a single pool, they become becomes a hugely expensive um, issue to provide coverage to them. So my question to you is, how are how is what you're proposing different from what failed in the past? That's one. And the second is, 
Is $1 billion enough? Is $25 billion enough? What really is the right amount to make sure that these pools are adequately funded and the sickest of the sick, because that's who goes into the high-risk pools, um, aren't stuck with insurance that's now out of reach because it's unaffordable. That's really what my understanding of what happened in the states in the past. Right. So as you say, not all states have high-risk pools, but the, the idea would be that every state would have a high-risk pool um, for these people who have in particular, very serious chronic or pre-existing conditions. The Under the Affordable Care Act, prior to the exchanges going into effect in January 2014, they did put $5 billion into a high-risk pool. The money was used up very quickly, and so it didn't really work that well. But I think, you know, the number is negotiable, and I think, you know, we'll have to look at how many people you know, are in this category. The Kaiser Family Foundation pointed out that there are about 6 million people who are in the individual market who, you know, have chronic or pre-existing conditions. People who have employer-based coverage, you know, this doesn't concern them. So we're really looking at who are the individuals who are in the exchanges today who, you know, may not be able to to get coverage or to afford, be able to afford it. So I'm hoping that 25 billion a year over 10 years would be, we'd be good, but maybe that number has to be 50 billion. It's unclear. We'll have to see, you know, who who is in the market, who, you know, who is trying to get coverage. One of the things, um, the other thing is that, that what my plan and other plans have talked about is, and for people who have continuous coverage um, for 18 months or more, they would be able to continue mm-hmm. their coverage at the same price that they were before. And there might be a small um, increase. The other point is that a lot of the um, the people that, you know, have pre-existing conditions, you know, it's, it's just hard to know who who exactly um, they they are. Well, that's true, and that's actually one of the problems that the insurers had at the beginning of uh, the ACA that they didn't have a health history of the people who were going to going to join, right. um, and that will be the same, I assume, with these uh, with these high risk pools. But what I'm still not clear on is why is this better to put people into a high risk pool as opposed to having people in one big pool. This is really how insurance started is I might be young and healthy and you may be old and sick or vice versa. And, and when I need healthcare, you help pay for it and vice versa. Um, why is it better to have a, a pool that's concentrated all the risk as opposed to having it in a bigger pool where you can dilute the risk by having younger, healthier people in it? Well, the whole idea, from my mind, you're right. Insurance should be it should be a big pool, and in the employer-based market, there are large pools, and that's why you know the people who are chronic, who work for say IBM, you know, don't have to pay you know much larger portion of the premium or copay. But you know, and you're right, actuarially, you know, the insurance companies, um, I think, just didn't really figure out how many um, of the people who are older and sicker would actually you know, sign up for coverage. And so that put a lot of pressure on cost. And then the young invincibles, the group that I'm no longer in, um, the people 18 to 34, they were, it was predicted, the administration predicted 40% of the exchange people would be in that group, 18 to 34. And in fact, it's only been about 28%. So the the people, you know, the, the, the cost of coverage, the cost of care for these older and sicker people has been a burden on the insurance companies. And I think that's why we've seen a number of them, the United, the Aetna's, the Blues, getting out of the exchanges uh, this year because because of the financial losses. But insurance should really, there should be a huge pool. And I think, 
you know, Tom Price and myself, we were all big fans back in the day of, of um, association uh, health plans, and they've come back so that, you know, people could group together. You could have your religious group or your garden group or whatever and get together and build some bigger pools so it would take the pressure off the people who are paying premiums who are younger and healthier and will help subsidize those people. So not everyone would have to go into a high-risk pool. It would just be, it could be, a, you know, a much smaller number than six million people. So I'm going to come back to at the start of, of Obamacare and part of the uh, problem that the insurers had was that they didn't know who were going to sign up, as you, as you said, and the hope was that there would be younger, healthier people. And as an incentive, uh, we had the mandate, which everybody hates because people hate the word mandate, uh, which was supposed to get the younger people to come in. But the mandate the mandate was associated with such a small penalty that it really was, wasn't very effective. So right. there, were, there were risk mitigating mechanisms that were put into place in order to help the insurers, which, um, which have by and large um, expired or, or failed to be renewed, I think, in, in right. one case. To, to why, December 31st. Yeah, so why completely throw everything out when some of these things were fixable? We could have a, a better way to get the young, healthy people into the big pool. We could um, expand or, or um, uh, prolong the period of time when the insurers had some protection from the risk. Why do we have to throw it all out instead of just tweak it? Well, I mean, that, there are a lot of people out there who have, have been saying that Obamacare light, Obamacare 2.0, um, there have been even some Republicans saying, well, we need to repeal and delay. Um, I'm for repeal and replace, and as Mr. Trump said and, and Paul Ryan has said, I'm for repeal and replace essentially simultaneously. Vice President-elect Mike Pence has said, you know, we would hope to have this done within the first 100 days and probably by April. And the reason that I, I say this is because the American people at the voting booth, I believe, you know, when, when, uh, pres when nominee Trump went to um, – Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and really talked about Obamacare. It wasn't talked about much in the campaign up until the end. And I think people who, you know, the 11 million people in the exchanges, they realized the premiums were up on average for next year, 22%. Deductibles were very high. I mean, in some cases in the bronze plan, a deductible of, of $12,000 for a family, that is people until their insurance kicks in. That's just, they can't afford that. So, and then people were finding that you know, in, in a third of the states, there was only one one insurance plan in the exchange. The networks of the small networks of doctors and hospitals was a huge issue with people. And then um, 18 out of the 23 co-ops, you know, had failed. So I think the American people were upset with Obamacare. And I think we and I believe we have to go back and restructure the the healthcare plan. So it's one that really works on excellent health care for all Americans. We all want affordable, accessible, quality care. But I mean, even the president realized there were problems with Obamacare. And I think, you know, let's go back to the drawing board and come up with a plan that really, as I say, provides accessible, affordable, quality care for everyone. So we could debate about, <clears throat> we do know from surveys that most of the people who hated Obamacare actually didn't really understand Obamacare. There were a number of surveys that were done by the Kaiser Health Foundation that showed that. So, um, and as, as, as listeners will see as we go through this, healthcare 
is complicated. Healthcare insurance is complicated. It's particularly complicated in the U.S., where we have, a, um, you know, such a fractured um, delivery system. But I wanted to move on because I think a nice segue would be to talk about selling insurance across state lines. Can you explain to the listeners uh, what what does that mean? What are you trying to get out here? What would it take to make that happen? And how well, do you see specifically that as a benefit? Well, so, I mean, back in when um, Mr. Trump was campaigning and he was still, you know, in the in the race against the 16 other um, people who were trying to get the nomination, he said, you know, we need to get rid of those state lines. And I thought, what state lines? I mean, we're not going to have one big country. We're not going to have states. But then I quickly realized he was talking about health insurance. So this is one of the um, ideas that is in my plan. It's in the, the um, Trump's plan. It's in Paul Ryan, um, Tom Price. They all agree that this is this is something that we should do. Um, I think it is it is viable. Um, the insurance companies, for the most part, don't like it um, because I think they figure they're going to you know lose um, customers to states that have fewer mandates and regulations. Which one would hope that some of the that the states, if this does go through, that states would reduce those costly um, insurance mandates and regulations that add, you know, across the country about uh, 20 to 50 percent of the cost of a premium. The actually, people can today buy coverage um, across state lines. Going back to 1945, when McCarran-Ferguson passed, the states were given the ability to run their own healthcare systems. But under these, um, under the under the law with the insurance compacts. About five states have had the opportunity to have, you know, um, companies sell insurance in, in different states. And no one seems to have um, bought up on it yet. But I think it can be done. It will be complicated. Nothing, as, as you say, nothing in healthcare is easy or simple. I like to say understanding healthcare is similar to unraveling an onion. Many layers and many many tearful moments. It's very cool. Yeah, makes your eyes water for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, and even a lot of the, the politicians that are elected don't like to talk about it because it is so, it is so complicated. But I think, I think it is, it is, it is a good idea and it, it would, you know, it, it would be complicated, but it, it will, would help reduce the cost of care and people would have the opportunity to get coverage in the state that they want. If I want a plan that covers um, in vitro fertilization, it's not offered in California. I should be able to buy it in Arizona. You may want a plan that covers alcohol rehabilitation, but you should be able to get it in the state. Um, in the same way that you know people can buy car insurance, they don't have to buy their car insurance um, only only in California. So I think the compacts um, were were a good start, but they weren't really. Um, they, they, so I they want to drill. Really, I want to drill yeah. down on this because the. My understanding of the reason why insurers haven't opted to sell across state lines doesn't have anything to do with the mandates. They don't really contribute that much to the total premium cost. The way insurers deliver health care in the U.S. is they go out and they get contracts with the delivery system. So they contract with the hospitals, they contract with the doctors, and when they roll all of that up, it becomes the cost of care and contributes to the calculation of the of the premium. So if I have a low, if I'm insurer A and I have a low cost plan in Mississippi, in part it's low cost because the delivery system is cheaper. You know, it, for for doctors to earn a good living in Mississippi doesn't cost as much as if they're living in San Francisco. So 
if if you're selling across state lines, leaving the mandates aside, you're still going to have a big difference in cost between my plan, plan A in Mississippi, and me, the insurer, selling in California. That has more to do with how you build the delivery system than to than to state mandate. So I don't. I'm really struggling with how that ends up making healthcare more affordable. I guess I would maybe differ with you in the sense that I think that the mandates are an important part of the cost of of, of care, and each state has you know many different mandates, and and each state has its own. Most, most states have their own insurance commissioner who sort of get involved in all this. I I do think um, that you know people should be able to have the option to get the kind of care that suits their needs and those of their family. So it 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 you know it's it's not going to be easy. It's a complicated idea, but I think it's definitely worth investigating and it's it's worth doing. If you know there there's problems with any anything that's new. I mean as my late No, I agree. Mentor. It's just it's not it's not actually it's not actually new. But I want to come back to this idea of people being able to buy what they want because this was a big part of Dr. Price's testimony today that I ought to be able to buy an insurance plan that's tailored to my needs. Um, you know, given how complicated health insurance is and given how most people don't really understand what's in their insurance policy because, you know, the explanation of benefits are usually pretty dense, you know. And right, and, and if, it, if you, you don't, don't really use your health, if you don't need to use it, then you really don't care. Then you don't care, and it isn't until yeah. until you have to use it and you go and you find out, oh, hey, you know, you, you've hit your lifetime cap, right, of, of that, which used to exist before it was uh, banned with, yeah, the, with right. the ACA. Um, so... How how are you going to sell insurance to people who don't really want to make their, like us, <laughs> don't really want to spend their time waiting through EOBs, but want to be sure they're protected when they, when they need it? How, how can you be sure that I don't underbuy insurance without having, for example, something like the essential, you know, the mandate for the essential, uh, essential benefits? How do, how do you see that playing out? Well, I mean, I, I guess the, the, the issue is that the essential benefit plan, which is part of the, the 10 points that are part of Obamacare, are in addition to the state regulations. And a lot of people I've read about and people that I've talked to on radio shows say that, you know, the essential benefit plan um, means that I can't get the kind of policy that suits me or my family. A lot of younger people, you know, don't want, you know, don't want to have to pay for, you know, pregnancy um, um, helping you after you've had your baby and all of this. So, I mean, but there will be plans out there that if, if I want a plan that covers all these different things, alcohol rehabilitation, hair prosthesis, I should be able to go and buy it. But why should we keep some people out of the market because of these mandates that are in a plan in addition to the state mandates, which, you know, are, are very, um, very difficult. And, you know, 5 million people lost their their healthcare plans when Obamacare passed because their plans didn't qualify uh, because of the essential benefit plan. So I think Americans like to have choice. They like to be able to decide what is best for them, even though healthcare is 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 complicated. I think you know the, the people are smart enough to be able to figure out this. And, it, and the other thing is that we're you know we're talking about those people who aren't. Um, covered under employer-sponsored insurance, which covers about close to 165 million Americans. 
Right. I guess philosophically, we're, <laughs> we we view this a little a, a little bit well, probably quite a bit differently, um, because I I kind of feel like if 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 I have a product that's so complicated that the average guy doesn't understand it, and I'm I'm not trying to be patronizing. I um, I know that I have trouble understanding, you know, some of the complicated benefits um, and what exactly is covered and isn't covered and what the exceptions are and all that kind of stuff. When people are buying insurance, I think in general, they generically think they're getting insurance and they'll be covered when they need it. And, and um, part of the regulations around the essential health benefits was to sort of put a floor on, on you know, what's the... What's, what should everybody get in an insurance plan as opposed to some people getting coverage that really turned out? And, and the problem is you don't know it's not adequate until, until you end up having a problem and then you go in and all of a sudden, you know, you're faced with, you know, healthcare bills are so enormous now. Um, and, and then it's too late. Um, I mean, how, how, if you allow everybody to buy every kind of health, insurance plan regardless of what's covered and what's not covered and what people understand and what they don't understand how, how do you what do you think the role of government is in in protecting them or do you think there is there is no role well i i would like to see you know as i said earlier doctors and patients in charge of healthcare empowering patients and getting the federal government out of out of out of our healthcare system. I mean, right now, 49% of healthcare in America is in the hands of government anyway, whether it's through Medicare, Medicaid, the CHIP program for children, the Veterans Administration. I mean, we, we just don't have a real competitive market in healthcare. The other thing I, that I wanted to make a point is that so many people have been so upset. They bought an exchange plan, whether it's platinum, gold, silver, or bronze. They bought a plan and they thought, well, my doctor will be in that plan and I'll be able to get this. Or if I have to go to the hospital, I bought this plan, Dr. Jones, you know, my surgeon is covered. They had no idea that the anesthesiologist may not be part, it may not be a network and may not be covered. Plus even their main doctor. I mean, I've had so many people tell me they bought the plan, they never, they, of course they didn't check to see is, is Dr. Pipes, you know, in, in network. It turns out it's also a problem in employer-sponsored healthcare because it ensures one of their strategies, whether they're whether they're selling to employers or whether they're selling on the exchanges, one of the strategies is narrow networks. So here in California, you know that our friends in Southern California, Cedar Sinai, tends to have really high prices, and I believe at one point, I don't know if it's true now, was excluded from from all yeah. of the plans that were offered on the exchanges. I think, so I think that's people still the case at Cedars. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for people who, who want to, you know, it's very hard to have the, the really high price provider in the network and still provide healthcare that somebody can, can afford. So I think narrow networks probably aren't going to go away and people are still going to face this as, as employers. One year they offer selection ABC, the next year they may offer, you know, XYZ as they're trying to, you know, manage their costs as well. Well, my, 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 you know, response would be, I mean, I, I don't think employers should be involved in the healthcare business at all. And particularly as healthcare's got more expensive then they've been cutting back. I mean, this was a gift during World War II when wage and price controls were in to give employers the ability um, to attract new employees by offering health coverage, um, which would be tax free. And so we've got into this huge, the federal government got us into this huge mess in the first place. And, 
the, the, the big idea would be to get out of it and have these, you know, have large pools of, of people um, individually and not getting their coverage through through their employer. It's going to be difficult to do. I, in, the, in the first place, I'd like to see that the the um, the tax the ta the le the playing field leveled so that because individuals can't buy their coverage with tax-free dollars like people who have employer-based coverage even though the people with employer-based coverage presumably make less money because the employer is covering their their coverage but as a first step i would like to see individuals be able to buy their coverage uh with tax-free dollars just like people who have employer coverage so uh, you know, I, uh, I, here's an area where we agree because I actually think, um, and I think a lot of employers, not that they would necessarily say it publicly, but may say it privately amongst themselves would kind of like to get out of the health insurance business too. Um, but that is a nice segue, I think, to um, talking about um, the tax credits. So I see in your plan that if I'm age 18 to 35, you're, uh, I don't know if there's a placeholder number, but you're recommending a $1,200 tax credit, and that goes up to $3,000 when, when you're over 50. 50 um, or over, and plus $900 per child if you have children. Right. So if I'm earning, you know, I'm a low-wage earner, I'm earning, you know, $25,000 a year, how is that, how much of, how, how much of my premium are you anticipating that that tax credit will protect me from? Well, first what? of all, if you're earning $25,000, you are probably on Medicaid, so this wouldn't, um, wouldn't apply to you. Um, but I think, but the issue is the, um, if we open up the market and have different types of plans and, and get rid of the essential benefit plan, that there will be different types of plans that these people, as we chatted about earlier, would be able to afford. And so, you know, if you're 18 to 35, $1,200. So if you found a plan at $120 a month, which is the way it was before, then you would be, you would be, you know, in, in, in good shape. And if you had money left over in your plan, you would be able to put that money into a health savings account and allow it to carry forward, um, you know, tax free um, until, until you want, you want to use it. So I think it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a much better idea than having income-based plans. Also, that these refundable tax credits would go to the individual person and not to the insurance company, as is the case today under under the tax subsidies under Obamacare. And uh, so let's talk just briefly, because this, this time just zipped by, um, but I wanted to uh, talk briefly about health savings accounts and um, how that would work. Um, why don't you explain a little bit about uh, your proposal and kind of the Republican proposals for health savings accounts. And I presume that these are gonna be in combination with, with uh, high deductible uh, health insurance plans. Right, right. So HSAs originally were called medical savings accounts um, back in the day. Um, I remember um, uh, John um, Mackey, head of Whole Foods, you know, had the original, one of the first companies to have HSAs and health reimbursement accounts, and they um, uh, became HSAs when President George W. Bush uh, was in office. And HSA, a health savings account, is a bank account where you would put X dollars per month into your HSA. It has to be combined with a um, high deductible um, insurance plan so that, you know, the money and you would use the money in your HSA for you know, going to the dentist or, you know, having, you know, going for your general 
if you wanted to, you could otherwise you could pay out of pocket. So the amounts under the um, HSA plan for an individual this year are $3,400 and $6,750 uh, per uh, family. Um, I would like to see those amounts um, increased at least to $5,500 for an individual to match uh, what people can put away in their um, in their IRA, their independent retirement account. So about 19 million Americans have HSA accounts. Um, a lot of employers are offering them now because they put um, individuals and patients more in charge, and people tend to be more um, careful about how how they spend their tax dollars. Because, as you know, people who have first dollar coverage under employer-based plan, I mean, they may pay a copay of thirty dollars, twenty dollars, or they may pay a part of the premium. But when people don't know, you know, if people don't have skin in the game. They go to the doctor and they say it doesn't really matter because I'm not paying for this. So I think HSAs really put people um, in charge. And I think Donald Trump had a good idea, which I had not thought of, which was that if people have an HSA and they pass away and money is left in their account, it could be uh, passed over to their next of kin tax-free. So I think that's that's a, a very uh, good idea as well. So HSAs are um, um, are an important part of uh, and over, uh, you know, a new, you know, a replacement plan for HSAs. I know Mike Cannon at Cato is talking about and getting rid of employer-based covering, having large HSAs, so that, that you you could group together with your in your company, or you could group together with small groups and have these large um, HSAs. I haven't really looked into it that that closely, but but it is another idea out there. So so there. So, so if I'm an, if I'm an individual, though, let's leave the whether the 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 new associations uh, end up being part of anybody's plan. They right. you know, could be another way of bringing people into pools. But if I'm an individual um, <clears throat> and it's year one, um, you know, for most people, we, we know already if we look at people's savings for retirement, that most people right. are putting $5,500 away to save for retirement. So, so I'm in year one and I've put $500 into my HSA or even let's say I put, I, I, I take advantage of the $1,000 refundable tax credit and put $1,000 in. Right. That would cover one-tenth of a hospitalization. And now, I, okay. and now I'm back to zero. So, so it, and, and the, I know the my... Point, the, the point you're missing is that you would have a high deductible um, um, in, um, uh, insurance plan so that if you have some sort of a catastrophic event, that would, your then insurance would kick in. I mean, I have one myself, so... I know that my husband and I use the insurance when we have to go and have, you know, a med you know, a, a procedure at the hospital. So that's that's the way um, that would work. Now, the young people, and it's going to take some time to build up the money in their HSA. But on the other hand, they're probably they're not high users of healthcare, and unless they are, right? Well, I mean, they, well, unless and that's why you want unless they have an accident or they get a you know chronic illness like lupus or or, or yeah, something right. like that. Sure, absolutely. It, it seems to me, and we're going to see how this is going to play out. I mean, it sounds like we're going to do this experiment. Um, and, and when we talk about skin in the game, we do know from the RAND insurance study from a number of years ago that you don't get to, you, you don't continue to get benefit on, on utilization without, without putting people at risk after you go above a certain level of exposure. So it isn't endless that if you expose me to $10,000 worth of risk, I will I will behave rationally and get the care I need and not get the care I don't need. What happens is you flip into a situation where people 
start to not get the care that they that they do need. So where are the protections? I, I get that after the deductibles, and it will remain to be seen. You know, the deductibles were pretty high on some of the exchanges this year, um, so people were exposed to to you know pr pretty pretty high out of pocket costs before they ended up getting any in insurance. So if I have not been able to save for an HSA. And I have my my first event is I step off the curb and I get hit by a bus. Um, forbid, I, yeah, I'm in bankruptcy. Well, um, I guess um, the, as I say, you know, HSAs won't be won't be for everybody. I mean, but these are we're talking about giving people different options to suit um, their their particular needs, and so. The HSA is 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 one way, and it, they they've proved to be popular. And um, certainly, as, as you mentioned on the exchanges with those high deductibles, um, a, according to things that I've read and even coming out of CMS, people have been avoiding, you know, getting care when they need it because they can't they can't afford the deductible. So I think, you know, it it really depends on you know what what position you are in life, you know, what your own health is. I mean, I think Tom Price is talking about. You know, when you reach age 65 today, you can't continue to put more money into your health savings account. But, you know, if you're a Warren Buffett and you've got, you know, oodles and boodles of money, I mean, why shouldn't you be able to, why do, why would you even, you know, take Medicare? You should be able to, you know, get, you can afford to get your own coverage. You should be able to set up an HSA and you should be able to, to continue to use it. I mean, this, the whole idea of Medicare kicking in at age 65 when the average American today lives to 79 whereas back at 51 years ago we only lived to age 65 so i think i think it it it's all kind of dependent on where you are what kind of plan you want what is your family situation we don't need this sort of one size fits all um, i'm from canada i grew up under a single payer system where the government is is a sole provider of health care and as a result as as people demanded more the supply went down you know, the average weight in Canada today from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist is the highest since they began measuring times, wait times, it's at 20 weeks. So that is that is not ideal for the American people. And my mom used to say, I hope you're not becoming one of those impatient Americans. And I am. But I mean, this is very important. People need 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 competition. They need choice. And that is universal choice will lead to, I think, a solution to this very complicated issue with healthcare. Well, I think that we're going to have to let you have the last word. So thank you very much. I, I, I do have still on my agenda that I'd love to talk to you, perhaps in a in a future discussion about um, the future of Medicare and Medicaid. But we'll have to just leave it at that. So I want to thank you very much, Sally. I think that. Um, you've helped our listeners to understand these key issues of high-risk pools, tax credits, selling across state lines, and HSAs, and I hope that helps to get them engaged in this ongoing discussion during this transition period of, um, of what may be repeal and, and replace.